Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Ben Ryder. Ben is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of the new book, Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. Ben, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Well, Ben, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. You know, it really started when I was not living in this country at all. I was six years old. Living in, living in England, where my father had been relocated for work. And this was not like following the game internationally uh, like it is now. Back then, my attempts to follow the game uh, were each morning at like 6 a.m., I'd run to the front door where the independent newspaper had been delivered. Um, and I would scour the sports pages just in case, in the back, in tiny, like six-point font, they had chosen to put that day's box scores in the paper. That was not a daily event, but I was looking in particular for the box scores of the New York Mets because I lived in New Jersey before. Straw, Doc, Keith, Ron, all those guys. Sometimes I found the box scores. Clearly, given the way that season ended up, it was a good year for a young guy to get into baseball, especially if he was a fan of the Mets, even if he was living on the other side of the Atlantic. How many games were you actually able to watch at that point? I imagine the World Series was televised. Was anything else? (laughs) Not really. And of course, the World Series started at like midnight most of the time. Maybe back then there was an afternoon game that year. I'm not sure. Uh, But, you know, I didn't watch very many games in person. Although I do think when I was visiting my grandparents the next summer, my grandfather took me to a Yankees game, actually. Um, It ended up being like a 17-inning game that they lost to the White Sox. I was seven years old. I insisted on staying through the end. Um, and, you know, I was obviously hooked at that point. Do people collect baseball cards in England? Is that a thing? I certainly did. You know, I think I'd have every care package I got from my family would probably include a couple wax packs of tops. Uh, I was big into baseball cards. That was, in fact, perhaps the best way for me to stay connected with the game because I could actually see what the guys looked like, you know, follow their stats obviously a year later. Uh, but yeah, I think my first complete set was the 1986 top set. Well, you got to hang on to that. That's definitely going to be worth a ton of money someday. That's what we were told when we were kids, and we know that those sets are going to make us rich. <laughs> yeah, how's that turned out? Yeah, very well. Good for n- rich with n- nostalgia. Perhaps. Well, let's talk about your book, Astro Ball. It's about the Astros' rise, basically from a laughingstock franchise to World Series champs. It's a very good book. I just finished it today. I wanted to start with Jeff Luno, who, of course, is the Astros president of baseball operations. He started in St. Louis. What is his history with baseball? He's very much an outsider at the time, but how did he get that first job? Right. Well, Jeff Luno was a business guy. You know, he was went worked at McKinsey after going to business school at Northwestern. He helped start a few tech companies out in uh, San Francisco. So how he got to baseball was an unusual path, as it was for everybody who was an outsider 15 years ago. Bill DeWitt of the Cardinals had either read or been told about Moneyball, right, which had just come out, Michael Lewis's book, of course. And he was a savvy guy himself who made a lot of money in business. And he immediately recognized that essentially statistical analysis and bringing aboard people who were adept at it was a way to get a leg up. And the Cardinals, frankly, needed one. Despite all of their recent success, or I should say their long-term success, they had started to not draft very well. 
Albert Pujols, obviously a big hit. There are a couple others, Yadi Molina, Dan Heron. But by and large, they had not produced as many stars out of the draft as really any team should if it wants to sustain its success. So Bill DeWitt's son-in-law, a guy named Jay Kern, had worked with Luno at McKinsey and knew that he was a baseball fanatic. He would dominate every one of his fantasy leagues. Uh, he knew every top prospect, even in the days before that was kind of widely covered on the internet. And he also knew how to use data properly and integrate it into an organization to get better results. So he connected Luno with DeWitt. Uh, De- DeWitt hired him first as essentially a consultant and then as the director of the scouting department. Now, that didn't go all that well internally, at least politically, because St. Louis, of course, had had a lot of success doing things the same way for a long time. And when this interloper came in, a lot of their old timers were not pleased about it. You know, they called him Harry Potter. They wouldn't They'd stop speaking when he entered a room. In one case, when DeWitt was going to fire somebody who just would not get on board with this change, he asked Luno to work off site that day in case the guy came after him and tried to fight him. But look, I mean, he brought aboard a data scientist named Sig Meidel, who was a former NASA rocket scientist, and before that, a blackjack player. And together, they overhauled the St. Louis scouting department. And in their seven years there, they produced more major league players in their draft than any other scouting department. So clearly, these guys were onto something, no matter what some of the other people in the front office thought. Now, you mentioned that uh, they had to ask Luna to leave the room when uh, they were getting rid of someone. Was that someone, Walt Jockety? You told that story in the book that the former general manager of the Cardinals, when he was replaced, they asked Jeff to go to a different place so that they were afraid Jockety might go and attack him. Is that what happened there? It was not Jockety. That was was somebody else. Jockety was clearly not happy when he was replaced by John Masalak, who was perhaps more on board with a new way of doing things. But uh, Jockety was not the person who tried to go after Luno. You mentioned Sig Meidel, and Sig helped Jeff design an algorithm that basically combined scouts' inputs with advanced metrics. And that sort of combination was revolutionary. Tell me how he was able to do that. Sig Meidel is obviously a data genius, a math genius. As I said, he worked at NASA. Um, He worked at Lockheed Martin launching satellites. But he was another person like Jeff Luno, who his whole life had been in love with baseball. And he had no place in baseball, essentially until Moneyball came around. So he spent a lot of time after he read that book, reaching out to every front office in the league, offering his services, making pitches, sending proposals. He even stood in the lobby at the winter meetings in New Orleans for several days with no luck at all. Nobody got back to him except for one person, Jeff Luno who had just become the scouting director in St. Louis. So he brought Sig in and, you know, Sig is a math genius, but one of his strengths is that he's also a humanist. He recognizes the value of people. He has always recognized that human gut, human instinct, human observation can identify qualities that might lead to winning that the numbers can't describe. Uh, And a lot of those observations, at least as related to the draft, are coming in from scouts who in some organizations, as we saw in Moneyball in particular, have been kind of pushed aside a little bit as outdated. You know, the numbers could, could describe situations better. It was about the primacy of numbers over humans. Uh, Sig and Jeff realized that if you're, if you're discounting humans, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There were certain things they could detect that the numbers couldn't. 
So they developed a way of, you know, quantifying the scouts' observations and figuring out which were the good ones and which ones were perhaps the results of biases and things like that and combining them with the performance data they had, ideally to get the best single result out of the best that man and machine had to offer. One of the great parts in the book is how you detail how Jeff would run the draft room on draft day. And he would want input from the scouts. He would want all of his area scouts in the room with him. He also wanted input from the science guys. And obviously he wanted the math input, but he would let guys, you would say he had, each guy had a sticker that they could stick on a guy. It was just a gut feeling sticker. But one of the people at the time who Jeff hired to help him with the draft, especially getting uh, finding college players from Division II schools or smaller schools, was Chris Correa. And we'll get more into Correa and his role in the hacking scandal later. But tell me what his relationship was with Jeff while he was in St. Louis. Right. I mean, I think it was generally good back then. And, and you're right. I mean, you wouldn't think that somebody who was so mathematically and data-driven would want anybody in the room, really. you you think he would, it would just be him and his computer picking whichever player the algorithm spat out. That wasn't true. I mean, he allowed his scouts, as you said, to stick these gut feels stickers, as they called it, on players about whom maybe they couldn't even describe why they had such a good feeling about them. They just did. That's their intuition speaking to them. In fact, the whole reason they drafted Trevor Rosenthal in 2009 uh, was because a scout in the room named Aaron Looper had seen him throw about one and a third innings in community college and liked his arm. That, of course, gave him their World Series closer in a draft that eventually produced five major league contributors on a team that made the World Series. So that was a, that was a good draft. But uh, yeah, certainly Chris Correa was in that room as well. He was a part of what was then a very small analytics department with SIG. Um, and, you know, at least in the early years, until almost until they left for Houston, uh, things were pretty seamless in that department. That certainly was not the case a couple years later. I want to talk about that 2009 draft that was really interesting. The Cardinals that year, they took Shelby Miller. They were surprised that he fell to them in the first round. He was supposed to be a top 10 pick, but he slipped a little bit. Uh, That draft is notable now because they got Matt Carpenter very late in that draft. They also got Trevor Rosenthal, as you just mentioned, Matt Adams. They got a bunch of major leaguers who helped them win. But the Cardinals are one of those teams that passed on Mike Trout. And part of the whole experience with Jeff and with SIG was that they were supposed to build systems to identify players that other people weren't, and they missed on Trout. Why did that happen? It happened for a lot of reasons, and one of their real strengths in their whole system is that they're constantly improving it. They are not people who think that their system is infallible, that it can't be wrong. They're constantly testing it, and in fact, it grew by leaps and bounds, as I write in the book, once they actually got to Houston and were in charge of the whole thing. So they spent, like, I think probably, what is it, 22 other teams that passed on Mike Trout as well, spent a lot of time figuring out how that happened. And part of the reason was the bias uh, that existed not just with scouts, but perhaps were baked into the numbers as well, simply against a high school player from New Jersey. There'd almost never been a very good one. There was Willie Wilson, but not many others. So, you know, these systems rely on regression analysis and back testing, and it all relates to track records. And when you have such an outlier like Mike Trout, it's very hard to see no matter how you slice it. So that was certainly one of those key mistakes 
that going forward uh, they tried to wipe out. And I think when you look at the player they picked first overall in 2012, shocking the world, uh, they had done that by then. Well, let's move on to Houston now. That's obviously the focal point of the book. But I think to better understand it, we needed to sort of get where he was in St. Louis. Tell me about Jeff's initial pitch to Astros owner Jim Crane and what he said to him in that first meeting. You know, the funny thing is that the pitch that he made to Crane, and he had prepared like a 22 or 23-page deck, essentially, outlining exactly what he was going to do. The outlines of the pitch almost precisely followed what was going to happen or what did happen um, over the next, you know, six years, which is crazy, really. It didn't follow as far as exactly what players they were going to pick, exactly what moves they were going to get. It's not like he had a Gray's Almanac or something like that. But this idea that they were not going to spend money, any money at all, on a team that was going to lose anyway, you know, they were not going to, you know, rebuild as most teams do, quietly, pretending they're doing something else holding on to an old fan favorite just to keep the fans happy. You know, Luna always said, nobody cares if we lose 97 games or 107 games in 2012 if we're winning the World Series in 2017. Funny enough, that's actually something he told me back in 2014. Um, But he envisioned the outline of how they were going to rebuild right then. And he also envisioned the decision-making process they were going to use to do it. Uh, And that decision-making process relied very heavily on algorithms and data and really pushing those things to the bleeding edge, as they call it. Um, But the stroke of genius, I think, was really this revaluing of human gut, human instincts, human observations. And as I write in the book, almost every decision they make, uh, they made along the way was a combination of those two factors. And people forget this now, but before... Jeff and Sig took over, the Astros were already very bad. But they did get historically bad in a three-year stretch. And they were not only unwatchable, they were making amateur mistakes on a regular basis. They had 0.0 in the ratings. They were being laughed at, not just by media or old-school journalists, but they were being laughed at within the game. They were executives and players who were mocking the Astros. Um, They didn't seem to handle the Bo Porter firing well, and he unleashed on them. There were a lot of people who were resenting what the Astros were doing. And I'm curious if at any point during that time, they thought about doing something else. Was this, did they ever think about deviating from the original plan? No, they didn't. And that is the remarkable thing about this story. You know, you look at some other franchises and other sports, who have subsequently tried this plan, the Sixers, the Browns, they couldn't stick with it. It got too embarrassing. Uh, there were too much of a laughing stock. There was no promises of success. Obviously, the Sixers fired Sam Hinkey, like just before it actually started working. Uh, the Browns fired Sashi Brown. Their GM hasn't started to work yet, but it still might. Uh, the Astros were really alone in sticking to this thing, no matter how deep it drew them down. Um, And I think that's also a key to their success, just this unwavering confidence in the process they put in place. And I think that in one way it was necessary, right? Like people do think that it was Luno who cynically tore this thing down and, you know, delighted or something in the several years of misery that he put everybody through, fans, his players, even himself. But that's not true. This was a decision based on the situation on the ground when he got there. 
the team was already terrible. They had they were the worst team in the majors. I think two years earlier, they'd been ranked as the worst farm system in the majors. They essentially had no assets. It's not like they could pull a Yankees and remake their team in a week, right? They had nothing to work with. So they always knew it was going to be a long road. They always knew the key was going to be confidence. Some have called it arrogance, but I think it's more confidence in the process they put in place. And I talked to Jim Crane, the owner on the field, after Game 7 of the World Series in Los Angeles last year. And I asked him that question. I said, again, as I have asked before, was there any point where you had any doubt, where you started to think maybe we need to go another way? And he said, every day I told Jeff the same thing, the plan, the plan, stick to the plan. And that's exactly what they did, and we've seen the outcome. One of the interesting things is that the year before he started running the draft in Houston, they had just picked George Springer. So he was in the low minors when they took over, and Jose Altuve was there. And at the time, Jose yep. Altuve was barely considered a prospect. He was not a guy that was on these top 100 lists, or if he was, he was not very high up on the lists. What caused his, I guess, his turnaround from a guy that was just going to be a speedy utility guy to a guy that turned into one of the best players in the league? Did Jeff and Sig and the development team have anything to do with that, or was this just Altuve breaking out? It was both, you know, and you can throw out, you can throw Keuchel, Dallas Keuchel in that bucket as well as a player who was there um, and who was not highly regarded at all. You know, most of the ratings had him as a potential, you know, quad A type fifth starter command and control guy. Um, but I think it really was a combination of what those players, those people, I should say, had inside. And that's something that the Astros look for. They call it a growth mindset and they strongly focus on that as far as the players they acquire most of the time, um, the ability to adapt, to learn, to improve beyond even what statistical projections suggest they might become. So you have to give a lot of the credit to the players themselves. Some credit certainly goes to the techniques and the analytics that Luno and Sig and others like Mike Fast brought to the organization, uh, which could give them tools to figure out how to become better. For Altuve, for example, he was a guy who could hit everything, so he tried. You know, he swung at everything, pretty much, and he could hit it. And he hit it on the ground, hit it the other way, hit it up the middle, beat things out with his legs. That was who he was going to be. He was going to be, you know, in that tradition of speedy middle infield contact hitters. They showed him numbers that said, look, if you are more selective, if you pick pitches that are essentially middle, middle in, and if you elevate your swing a little bit and drive those balls, since you don't strike out anyway, uh, those are the balls that you hit for power. So what if you tried crushing those? That's essentially, in a simplistic way, what he did. And that was a key from Jose Development's development from speedy slap hitter into unlikely power hitting MVP. You talked a lot about the 2012 draft, which was Jeff's and Sig's first draft in Houston. That was the draft that landed them Carlos Correa. They also got Lance McCullers. And this has become common Byron Buxton was thought to be the number one player in the draft, but he was going to go for full slot or close to it. They took Correa at underslot so they could try and get McCullers as well, and that worked out. And that's common strategy at this point, and I think a lot of that has to do with the success that the Astros had in that first draft. However, the Astros have also had a lot of misses in the draft in Houston, too. I think it was the next year they passed on Chris Bryant. 
How did that happen? What were some of the mistakes that they made despite having the successes in 2012? They have made mistakes. There was Chris Bryant, and we'll get into the Brady Aiken saga in a little bit. But what happened with Bryant and Appel? I think that they got a little bit uh, complacent, actually, um, with that pick. Because if you remember, another contender for the number one the year before was Mark Appel. Um, He ended up going eight to the Pirates in part because his contract demands were so high. And then he went back to Stanford and re-entered the draft. So I think that the Astros were essentially just like, hey, I mean, this is a guy we loved last year. Um, Now we can have him and Correa on the team. Let's just do it. I think that that was probably one decision that they didn't contemplate as deeply as they should have. It obviously quickly revealed itself to have been a bad one. And the Brady Aiken mess. You tell me about what happened with Brady Aiken's medicals. I remember at the time, this was like peak disaster Astros. This is when they were losing 100-plus games <laughs> and the 0.0, and then it's like they can't sign the number one pick, and they weren't very forthcoming as to what was going on, and they didn't want to sandbag the kid, obviously, but they were obviously, something was going on. They weren't telling people. In the end, what was wrong with Aiken's arm? <laughs> right. Well, you remember, this actually happened like right after my SI story my SI cover story came out, uh, which predicted the Astros would win your 2017 championship. Um, this was one of many terrible developments that happened right away, leading people to believe that the SI jinx was alive and well. But again, one of their strengths is that they have very thick skins. Obviously, you need to, to pursue a plan like this. Um, and they recognize that you know PR has a value of its own. Um, but a lot of teams, I think, if they had drafted someone like Brady Aiken and thereafter had, you know, seen some medical reports, finally had seen some MRIs that revealed to their doctors that he had a problem with his UCL, that it was small, thin, however you want to describe it. It seemed like, you know, an elbow that would not hold up to them. But they couldn't say this publicly because they'd be violating HIPAA laws, you know, Aiken's medical privacy. As you say, they'd be kind of throwing the the teenager under the bus. So they essentially uh, stayed quiet about it and took all sorts of arrows from all over the place about how they're messing with a teenager again. Oh, here go the Astros playing so cynically. Um, That's not exactly what they were doing, but they couldn't explain it. Uh, Anyway, they knew they had an out, which was that they would get a compensatory pick in the next year's draft, which would be number two overall if they didn't sign Brady Aiken. Eventually, Aiken was the one who decided not to not to uh, sign their lowered offer. He re-entered the draft. They got the number two pick, and even that year, even the year before, they had a very good idea of who they would take with that number two pick. Um, they didn't want Dansby Swanson, who was the top overall prospect, according to everybody. They wanted Alex Bregman more than anybody, and that's who they ended up getting. So all of those arrows they took, all that hate, all that criticism, ended up getting them Alex Bregman and, of course, Brady Aiken in his first start uh, after having not signed towards UCL, and he has not become anything close to the player that the Astros and a lot of other teams thought he would. What did they identify in Bregman when he was a college player that they wanted so badly? It was a statistical profile, largely. They were clearly not concerned at that point about his size, which is a big knock against him because they had Jose Altuve, um, and they'd also long ago loved Jed Lowry, actually, who was kind of Sig's first like player that he identified when he came into the game as one that he really thought would be great, despite his physical shortcomings. Uh, so the size is not a problem. They saw a double line drive hitter. But again, it was this human element. Like 
their scouting revealed that Bregman was just like a, a baseball dog. He would do anything to win. Um, and then it was real. He wasn't like performatively cocky. He really was cocky. He really believed that he was the best player in the world and no situation was too big for him. So that combination of factors turned them on to him. And as we saw last October, uh, most strongly, that's certainly the player they got. So after years of futility and sort of being mocked within baseball, they finally get good. And then last year they get really good and they decide to pull the trigger on a Justin Verlander trade. And that wasn't a trade deadline trade. That was an August waiver wire trade. Player has to pass through waivers to make that happen. But that was a big acquisition. It cost money and prospects for a team that was very shy on giving up either. Tell me about how that Verlander trade actually came to be and came to be at the very last second possible. Right. Well, it was the last two seconds possible, technically, when Verlander finally waved away his no-trade clause at 11.59 and 58 seconds Eastern on August 31st. So that's how close uh, the Astros might have come, ultimately, to not getting the piece that put them over the edge of the World Series. But again, it's a combination of the analytics and just kind of gut instinct. You know, like, if you're going strictly on analytics, if a computer was making your decisions for you, you probably wouldn't have made that trade. You have not traded 18 controllable years of three very good prospects uh, for two plus years of a 35-year-old pitcher making well over $20 million a year. That doesn't seem to be a good bet. Um, but this, the conditions on the ground were different. The Astros had, had a terrible August after Jeff Luno had done very little at the trade deadline. They were wrecked by injuries. They were losing all of a sudden. Um, and the clubhouse was a bit ruffled as well by that inaction at the trade deadline. You remember Dallas Keuchel came out and said how disappointed he was that the front office hadn't brought in any reinforcements. On top of that was the fact that Houston had just gone through Hurricane Harvey, and it was certainly a consideration, especially one voiced by Jim Crane, that you know the Astros should try to do something to give people some source of optimism who are going through a very hard time down there. Um, Analytics as well were a bit mixed. I mean, yes, the contract was a problem, the age was a problem, but their nerd cave, as they call their analytics department, had picked up that Verlander seemed to have fixed some stuff from the first half of the season. He was throwing differently in August. They thought he'd figured something out. So you combine all of those signals into one decision, and the decision was ultimately do it, and they did with two seconds to spare. Carlos Beltran was a member of the Astros team last year, and Beltran at one point was one of the better players in the league. He was a five-tool player. You look at his career numbers, he is on par with many Hall of Famers, and most metrics, including wins above replacement, suggest he belongs in the Hall himself. But that's not the player that the Astros had, and they knew that. They had an old veteran player who couldn't run anymore and really couldn't hit that well either. But he made a huge impact on that team. Tell me why. He did. Well, I mean, they thought he would have a better season than he ultimately had. Um, he did have a lot. He did have a lot more success with the Yankees and the Rangers the season before. But still, I mean, an analytically driven team usually doesn't pay sixteen million dollars to a forty-year-old, no matter who he is. And if they wanted somebody who could just hit home runs, there were several options out there on the market. But Luno, from the start of the free agent period, even before, wanted Carlos Beltran, and he wanted him for a specific reason, which is that he thought that he could bring a quality to his clubhouse that neither Sig nor anybody else could quantify, but that he knew was real anyway, which is the idea of chemistry and leadership. You know, when the Astros had kind of jumped their own timeline in 2015, 
and made the ALDS, they were beaten by a team that seemed to have this stuff, the Royals. You remember those resilient Royals. You can never beat those guys. Um, there was this kind of extra element to them that nobody could quite understand but knew was real. That's what Luna was looking for. Part of his rebuilding process was getting rid of all the veterans, essentially, who were making a lot of money along the way. But that meant that by last year, he didn't really have too many veterans in there. So he wanted veterans. He wanted Carlos Beltran. And, you know, again, it's impossible to put a money value on it. But you talk to anybody in that clubhouse, and as I detail in the book, his impact was immense as far as teaching Carlos Correa exactly how to analyze opposing pitchers before the game, pitch to pitch, count to count, um, things like that. Correa attributed seven of his home runs last year to Beltran alone. And you can kind of, uh, you know, extrapolate that across the clubhouse. And then in the World Series, as I write in the book, he didn't have a hit um, and he retired shortly thereafter. But it was him who picked up that Hugh Darvish was tipping his pitches and he kind of spread that word around the clubhouse. So there was a reason why the Astros seemed to know exactly what Darvish was going to throw in uh, games three and seven before he did it because he did. And he also did a lot of work diffusing the Yuli Gurriel uh, situation as far as him making what was perceived to be a racist gesture um, in the direction of Darvish. He assumed kind of a diplomat type of role and diffused uh, what could have been a very explosive situation uh, nicely for the Astros. So really that is another strength of the Astros. They figured out they can quantify almost everything but they still are smart enough to know that just because they can't quantify something doesn't mean it doesn't exist and shouldn't be pursued. So obviously they win the World Series last year. They beat the Dodgers in seven games. I'm curious just what you were thinking at that moment. You were the guy that wrote that cover story in 2014 <laughs> and that predicted that they would win the World Series. What did you think at that moment as they actually did? <laughs> it's funny, you know, I describe in the book how Jeff and Sig watched the World Series. Sig is like super emotional He's chewing on those rally towels you give out. He's screaming all the time. Uh, Luno's the opposite. He's very chill. He's sitting there almost zen-like. He says, you know, I've done everything I can do at this point. Now it's up to the players, and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And that's what he's like. I was more like a Jeff during the World Series. You know, I learned long ago that no matter what I hope, uh, no matter what, what, how invested I am in any particular outcome, it has no relation to that outcome. So I kind of sat back all the way through and just watched and wanted to see what was going to happen because I knew I probably had a book pending on the result. Um, they did do me a favor in game seven by jumping out to a 5 nothing lead on Darvish in the second inning. From then on, it was a pretty, a pretty calm game. I want to ask you about this year's team quickly, and I think one very notable thing happened with them at the trade deadline, and that's that they traded for former Blue Jays closer, Roberto Ozuna. And Ozuna is young, and he's great when he's healthy, and and he has been one of the better closers in baseball over the past few years. But he also is just coming off a 75-game suspension for domestic assault. We haven't got a lot of details about what he allegedly did, but there were rumors that the incident was so bad that the police in Toronto still talk about it, that the pictures are gruesome and horrifying. Why did they make that move to get Ozuna? I'll tell you, this is one that surprised me when it happened. And I put a lot of thought into kind of squaring why they did this um, related to everything I write about in the book as far as particularly how they do value character. But look, what you can say is that this process was designed to do one thing at the end of the day all along, and that's to win. And you take every possible signal that you have 
and you know put it together, combine them to come out with a decision. Clearly for the Astros, they decided that adding Roberto Asuna was worth, you know, the potential severe downside was worth the public relations blowback because at the end of the day, I think they decided that the best public relations of all is winning. And I think they had the example of the Cubs acquiring Aroldis Chapman two years ago and then winning the World Series and kind of not have had it, not have had it. He has not had another such incident since then. And I think at the end of the day, it was kind of a cold decision, but a lot of this business is cold as well. Now, I don't know anything about the validity of those rumors as far as the Toronto police and everything, but clearly the reaction has been very strong, uh, rightly so, among fans and, you know, opponents and even some people in the clubhouse. Uh, But look, it's another bet by the Astros. At the end of the day, the thing's going to work out, and they're going to have a cheap, dominant 23-year-old closer who won't have any more issues and whose issue will soon be behind them. I actually think this is going to blow up on them. I think it's going to blow up in the clubhouse a little bit. And I think at some point, however it happens, those pictures are going to be made public. And people forget with the Ray Rice situation in the NFL and how poorly that was handled for many reasons. It became a big deal, a bigger deal, I should say, when the video got released, even though we knew that video existed. At some point, those pictures are going to come out, and it's going to look so much worse than just this conversation is implying. I think, I think you're certainly right. That's a possibility. I mean, I think it's the riskiest thing that they've done overall, you know, for all the potential downsides uh, that you've just outlined. And yes, it's also morally questionable, but this is the bet they're making, and we'll just have to see how it works out. Before we wrap it up, I want to ask you one last question. Do you think Jeff regrets any decisions and I don't mean not taking Chris Bryant or something like that I mean with how he handled something do you think he would have handled anything differently given the benefit of hindsight I do and he he said this I think you know look Sig is obviously like the heart of the book in a lot of ways he's emotional he's very personal Jeff's always been a bit more of an introvert and I think that he's learned to become more of an extrovert over the year over the years, uh, particularly as related to kind of opening up at least to the players as far as what they're doing and why they're doing things the way that they're doing. You know, when they started to introduce several years ago the idea of shifts and things like that, you know, they weren't quite as open with the players, uh, not only about why they were doing it, but why that will help the individual players themselves in the long run. So I really think he's opened up a lot about his communication Uh, As far as his communication within the organization, of course, he doesn't need to convince as many people that what they're doing works because now we've seen that it works. You've been listening to Ben Ryder. Ben is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of the new book, Astro Ball. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ben Ryder. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Ross. It was a lot of fun. 